We read God's Word this evening in the first 34 verses of Luke 22. Luke 22, beginning at verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted... Strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. 
And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. This far we read the word of God. Call your attention to verses 31 and 32 of the chapter. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Beloved saints in Christ, the twelve disciples, eleven now because Satan is gone, or rather because Judas Iscariot is gone, the eleven are about to face the greatest temptation that they have ever faced in their life. That won't be a temptation to commit fornication or adultery, and it wouldn't be a temptation to steal but it would be a temptation to say of Jesus Christ, I don't know Him, and therefore of their Savior to say, I don't need Him. The effect of that temptation would be that their fellowship with Christ would for a while be interrupted and Satan would endeavor to separate them from Jesus Christ Himself. What is then the greatest trial or temptation you have ever faced? Was it perhaps a time when your life changed in a moment, in a split second? Maybe because you had your hopes and dreams bound up with marrying a certain person and then suddenly it became apparent that was not what the Lord would have you do. Maybe it was because you were married to one and a split second it became apparent that the Lord's time for your spouse to come to heaven had come. Was it, if not the death of another, some psychological or emotional or spiritual trauma that you went through? What was the moment of your greatest temptation? And while you answer that only for yourself, of course, then ask this too. At that moment, were you tempted to say, if this is how God is going to treat me, why would I serve Him? Were you tempted to say, I will give up everything I thought I stood for. I thought I was a Christian. I was raised to be a Christian. I went to school as a Christian. I was catechized as a Christian. But whereas I thought my Christian faith was going to bring me some benefit, I see it isn't, at least not at this moment. And I'm ready to give that whole faith up because of how my life is now. And then, did you wonder, or might you wonder, if this moment is future for you, what is Jesus Christ doing about it? If He loves me, if He's my Savior, why is He not fixing my problem? Why is He not changing? He's got the power to do that. And if your Lord and Savior would say to you at that moment, My son, my daughter, 
I am praying. Would you say, you are off praying? I need you to act, and you are off praying. Or would you say, all is going to be well with me now. My life is in a turmoil. It is up and down, and I've just been shaken to my very core. But all is going to be well with me now. My Savior is praying. Jesus said to Peter, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Peter, the greatest temptation in your life is about to come upon you. But I have prayed for thee. And therein, our Savior assured Peter that Peter, not in any strength of his own, but by the grace of God, would persevere. Fall he would, but not fall away. Indeed, the great doctrine set forth in our text is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Set forth in the fifth head of the Canons of Dort. I don't have time tonight to be referring to, that is quoting explicitly from any of the articles of the fifth head of the Canons. But you might today or tomorrow in a time of devotion read that entire head of doctrine again. But I will at times be referring to where in the Canons pertinent points are addressed which also come out in the text. The doctrine of the preservation of the saints is a beautiful doctrine. It reminds you and me that though we are weak and sinful and cannot stand a moment in our own strength, that nevertheless, God preserves us. He keeps the life of Jesus Christ in us. He sanctifies us. And when we fall, for we do and will fall, He will bring us again to sincere sorrow for sin, and put our feet again on a right way. There are many components to the doctrine of the preservation of saints. One of them is prominent in our text. Our Savior prays. I call your attention to this under the theme, Christ's Prayer for Peter's Preservation. Notice first, a violent shaking predicted. Second, messianic intercession assured. And third, grateful response required. It was the night in which Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. That passage that we read out of Luke records what happened in the upper room after Judas Iscariot is dismissed. The last Passover is eaten. The Lord's Supper is instituted. And the Lord reminds His disciples of what is about to come upon Him and what will come upon them. Earlier He had said, All ye shall be offended because of Me this night. And now to Peter, Peter, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. The temptation that would come upon the disciples would be that, as I said already, 
they would deny Christ. At the moment of His arrest, they would run for their own lives as if their lives were in danger. They would, at every opportunity, deny Him, and Peter especially, three times while Jesus was being tried in the palace of the high priest, would deny that He so much as knew the man. And in this way, Peter was saying, Have your Christ. Do with Him what you want. I will have no part of it. The denial of Christ by His disciples, and especially by Peter, was a necessary aspect of the suffering of our Lord. In the first place, it was necessary because Jesus died for sin. And as he died on the cross, it must be evident that he bore the effects of sin. He himself was not a sinner, of course. He bore the guilt of your sin and mine. But at the same time, he bore the consequences of sin. Death is a consequence of sin. But another consequence of sin is that the sinner is left alone. And so Jesus Christ suffers alone. Young people, let me impress on you a moment that that's a real consequence of sin. What do sinners say? What do the world of ungodly unbelievers say as they gather a crowd to go with them to do evil? And you read this in the book of Proverbs. Cast your lot in with us. We'll all have one purse. We're going to go together and do something, a mob. And we're going to have fun doing it. But if the police caught one of that mob, he'd be ready to turn on everyone else. There is not true friendship in sin. Even more, what is hell? Well, it's many things, but in addition to being separated forever from God's love and experiencing forever His wrath, hell is a place where sinners suffer alone. They don't band together in hell and say, all right, well, we're going to make the most of it together. Here we are, we're going to stand and suffer as best we can. No, in hell you suffer alone. And so Jesus Christ, as He bore the effects of sin must suffer alone. That's the first reason why it was a necessary aspect of His suffering. And the second is very simply this. All our salvation from start to finish begins and ends in Jesus Christ. I did not help Him. You do not help Him. Mary did not help Him. His disciples do not help Him. And the Lord will make that very obvious. They're nowhere to be found, or if they are, They're standing, lurking in the shadows. But even though this departure of the disciples from Christ was a necessary aspect of His suffering for us, it was sin on the part of the disciples. It was their skin, they thought. Their life was in danger. Their reputation, and rather than die which Peter said just a few moments earlier he would be very ready to do. I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Rather than that, he will deny his Lord. 
To this great temptation that's going to come upon the disciples, our Lord refers in the text by the figure of a violent shaking and sifting of wheat. Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. In the days before combines and threshing machines, when a farmer gathered in his wheat harvest, he found it necessary, as does a farmer yet today, to separate the head, the grain, from the stalk. And he did that by laying his wheat on a hard surface and flailing on that wheat, beating that wheat again and again with force and with vigor. It took energy. It took hard work to separate the chaff from the wheat, or rather the straw from the wheat. And by that agricultural analogy, our Lord underscores two points about the temptation that was going to come upon the disciples. The first was the violence of it. Just as a farmer must exert much energy to sift his wheat, so Satan would exert much energy and force on the disciples. This temptation that was going to come upon them would not just be a little thing. It would not be quickly over. It would be violent. It would shake them to their very core. It would be a moment at which they would say, the last three years in which we followed Jesus Christ, left our occupation, sometimes left our wives and families for a time, the last three years in which we were looking for the coming of a great messianic kingdom here on earth, some way in which Jesus Christ would deliver us from the power of the Romans and in which we supposed we would make up prominent seats in his cabinet, his board of advisors. The last three years were a waste of time. Why did we ever do that? Violent. In the second place, the figure of the sifting of wheat underscores what Satan desired as the effect of the temptation. Just as the farmer's goal in separating the wheat from the straw is exactly separation. And once the grain and the straw are separated, you never put them back together again. So Satan's goal in this temptation is to separate the disciples from Christ to, as it were, destroy the living bond of faith that God created when he united us to Jesus Christ and destroy it with such permanence that the two, you and I, or the disciples and Christ, would never again be brought back together in faith. That's what Satan is after. He wants 12 disciples with him in hell. Now, if the 12 disciples, closest friends to Jesus, were liable to suffer such great temptations, then, beloved, you and I also very certainly are also liable too. What is temptation? Temptation is Satan coming along and making some sin looks so pleasant to you and to me. Again, it could be a sin of violating some command of God's law in a gross way. But it, it could also be very simply 
instead of a gross violation of the law of God, the saying, you know, Christianity, it's okay, I'm a Christian, but I'd never be a Christian if I had to die for it. I'm a Christian as long as my life is pleasant. I'm a Christian as long as my belly is full. I'm a Christian as long as I have a good job and the people around me uh, hold me in high esteem. But I would never be a Christian if I were reproached by the world. It might be that kind of temptation that's going to come. Temptation is Satan making sin and unbelief look good, look pleasurable and desirable. It's certain that such a temptation will come on you and me if it has not yet already at some point in our life. For there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. On the one hand, that verse in 1 Corinthians 10.13 means that if somebody here has in your thought, sometimes the most heinous thought, you say, now how in the world could I, a child of God, even think that thought? then the answer ultimately is, well, that's our sinful human nature. And there are other Christians who thought those thoughts too. You're not the only one who ever thought it. But at the same time, I'm taking that verse and using it this way, that the child of God, because of the old man of sin in us, always wants what's best for us. And therefore, the temptation to deny ourselves, and if need be, to suffer, but than to be faithful to Christ or than to deny Christ in order to keep all of the joys and comforts we're used to, that temptation also will come upon us in one way or another. Now don't overlook that the temptation that came, that is common to all men came especially on the twelve who were closest to Christ. And that means in the first place, that even the holiest saints among us, those who really do live closer to Christ, and that's very likely true in a congregation that some, and I'm not evaluating the genuineness of their faith now, but that some actively live closer to Christ than others, that even those who live actively closer to Christ must say, I too can and will be tempted in the second place. That this temptation came upon the twelve disciples as a reminder those, to those who are most prominent in the church, to the pastor, the professor, to the elder, and to the deacon, that Satan first of all wants us. In his desire to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, he does not set his eye on the weakest member of the church, on the most well, just from an earthly viewpoint now, because from Christ's viewpoint there isn't such a person, but the most insignificant person in the church. He sets his sights on the men or the people who are the most prominent in the church. And if he can destroy them, he can destroy, he thinks, the whole church. The office bearers ought to expect such great temptation as the disciples faced. There are especially two factors that explain the violence of this shaking and temptation. And the first is Satan. Satan hath desired 
to have you. This makes sense, of course. God does not tempt. But every man is tempted, James says, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. But who is it that draws us away and entices us but Satan, our enemy? Temptation is Satan's tool to bring us to ruin and to destroy the work of God's grace in us. And therefore Christ says to Peter, Satan hath desired you. All twelve of you. The word desire isn't just to indicate that somewhere in Satan's mind he plotted and he planned and somehow Jesus Christ, who is all-knowing, could see what was in Satan's mind. That word translated desired is saying even more than that. The word suggests that Satan asked God. So think of what Satan did about Job. And imagine, and I'm not just having you imagine, I'm saying the word suggests it's how it went, that this is what happened here too. That Satan comes before God and says, God, see those twelve? Give them to me. There's nothing about them that makes them worthy of being special men. There's nothing about them that makes them worthy of being followers of Jesus Christ. Give them to me. I want them in hell with me. And God says to Satan in response, well, do what you want. I didn't promise you they'd go to hell with you, but do what you want. Try it. And what emboldens Satan, no doubt, to come to God with this desire or request is that he had already entered into Judas Iscariot, as we read in verse 3 of the chapter, and through Judas Iscariot had managed to get Jesus to be arrested and betrayed. So that's what explains the violence of your temptation too. And it's what explained Job's, Peter's, David's, ours, Lord's Day, I'm sorry, Article 4 of the Canons, Head 5, indicates that at the root of all temptation is Satan, the archenemy of God, and the archenemy of the church. And you know that if it's Satan who's tempting you, it will be violent, for he has more power than do you and I. The second factor that explains the violence of the temptation is our own weakness. And Jesus underscores that in the text when he says, Simon, Simon. Three years earlier, Jesus had called Simon to be his disciple. And we called Simon, he said, your name is Simon. It's the name your parents gave you. It's who you are. It represents you as a man. Represents you as a son of Adam, ultimately. Represents you as a a fallen, weak human being. I'm going to call you Peter. And that name is going to represent you from the viewpoint not of who you are by nature, but who I will make you to be by grace. Rock. What's interesting is to observe different times now throughout Jesus and Peter's life together when Jesus calls him Simon and when he calls him Peter. And I'm not trying to suggest that every time you can read this into it, 
But more than once, when Jesus said, Simon, he means, stop, you're a man. Don't forget who you are. And when he says, Peter, he means, oh, you're an object of grace. And what does he do here? Not once, but twice. Simon, you man, not you man, but you just a man. weak. You're a sinner. When I say to you that Satan had desired to have you, that he may sift you as we don't say I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. You cannot. And you'll turn tails and run so fast. Now that also explains the power and force of your temptations and of mine. How weak we are. Indeed. Articles 1 and 2 of Canons Head 5. If the Lord were, as the Arminian says He did, to have said to you, I saved you. I gave you a second chance. Now you, be sure you do it right. It's up to you to keep it up now. If that were true, we could not stand a moment. We'd all perish. But he doesn't. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you. This will be a violent shaking, but I have prayed for thee. And there lies Peter's hope. Here our Lord assures Peter of messianic intercession, but He focuses first of all on the one for whom He intercedes, thee. Did you notice the turn in pronoun from you to thee? Satan hath desired to have you, but I have prayed for thee, You in the King James is the second personal plural pronoun. Thee is the second person singular pronoun. Satan wants all twelve, and Christ prayed for Peter. Now this isn't meant to suggest that Christ did not pray for the other ten. Certainly he did not pray for Judas. But the point isn't that he didn't pray for the other ten. The point is that he has a word for Peter very specifically Right now, Peter, you see, if Satan could get the twelve, he could thereby have many, many other casualties among those who follow Jesus. But if he can get Peter, he has a good chance at getting the other ten. For Peter was a self-appointed leader and spokesman. I say self-appointed because the disciples never voted on who their president would be. Jesus never appointed one of them to be uh, the press secretary of the disciples. But if you ever got the twelve together and tried to get them to talk, Peter was going to talk first. Whether it was Simon talking, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Or whether it was Peter talking. 
Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Regardless of which man it was now, he was going to be the first to speak. The disciples then would likely follow him. At least what he said would likely influence their thinking too. And Satan knows it. If he can get Peter, he's likely got the rest. But I have prayed for thee. And now, beloved, I point you to your high priest. Our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who before he died and sat at God's right hand, prayed for Peter as his mediator and intercessor is the same Lord Jesus Christ who, by His death on the cross, having fully atoned for our sin, laid the basis for Christ, for God, not only to hear His prayer, but to answer it. And yet at the right hand of God, He still is praying. And He has not stopped praying for 2,000 years. You think it's something to pray for five straight minutes? Jesus Christ hasn't stopped praying for 2,000 years. I certainly don't mean to leave the impression that he's been praying and so, so busy praying he can't do anything else. Oh, he is able to do many things at once. But he's praying, and he's not just praying five minutes here and five minutes there. At the right hand of God, he prays to his heavenly Father. So in the text, we have Satan coming to God and desiring, and we have Jesus Christ at God's right hand, although from the viewpoint of the text, even before he was exalted, praying. Two things about the difference between how Satan approaches God and how Christ approaches God. First of all, that Satan approaches with a demand. These are sinners. Satan knows the justice of God. He knows how to argue from the justice of God. And that's the argument he uses. These men are sinners. They ought to be in hell with me. Jesus Christ doesn't demand, but he intercedes. He earnestly beseeches. He lovingly, humbly, and submissively entreats. And then his basis is not what we deserve, but what God's grace has provided for us in Christ. Why did he pray for Peter? Because he would die for Peter. Why does he pray for you and for me? Because he has died for you and for me. And therefore his prayer as he comes to his heavenly Father for you, for me as well as for Peter is not, Lord, 
I did my best in coming into the flesh in suffering for the sins of the people and dying on the cross. I did my best. Won't you just acknowledge that I did my best and give them some benefit? It's not even that. That's far too weak. It's this. It's just, Heavenly Father, it's righteous to preserve the faith of those for whom I died. Because I did die. My death was complete atonement. I've satisfied the wrath of God. It's thy will that they go to heaven. You hear that? The Messiah who intercedes says to Peter, I have prayed for thee that thy faith Fail not. So when Satan demanded Peter, the answer wasn't, no, you're not going to even so much as touch him. But God's answer was, go ahead and try. But Satan, you are the fool here because you think you will destroy his faith. And Christ has prayed that his faith fail not. But rather that it appear as genuine that after it's tested and sorely tried, it come forth as gold, that you see, Satan, that you can never separate that living bond of faith that God creates between Christ and His people. From this part of the text, now I want to drive home five points about the doctrine of the preservation of saints. More could be said. I'm not cramming the whole canon's fifth head into these five points, but there are five points, and they do come out some more clearly than others of the text. In the first place, what is the doctrine of the preservation of saints? It isn't that we will never sin. Peter would sin. It is that our faith fail not. And that on the one hand refers both to that bond, in other words, that the work of God's grace in us will not be destroyed. And therefore, that though we sin, we will surely be brought to conversion, as Peter says, as Christ says to Peter too. And when, not if, but when thou art converted. But then another part of the preservation of saints and the faith failing not is that though we in a moment of temptation deny our Lord, that faith nevertheless that we just did not confess will be so preserved in us that there will come a point in the life of every one of us when we confess Him. Though we die for it, we will say, oh yes, He is my Lord. That's what? That's first. Second, who? Who does... God preserve? And the answer is the Simons. Oh, that is such a comfort to me, isn't it, to you? It's not the Peters. It's the Simons. Because I and you, saints, still know the temptation to sin and the abiding weakness that is in us. The preservation of the saints is not have in mind some a differentiation among humans whereby some are Christians 
But some Christians are saints, the way Rome speaks of a saint. But the preservation of saints uses the word saint to refer to every child of God from the viewpoint of the life of Jesus Christ in us, working in us holiness, causing us to grow in holiness, a holiness that is from our heart and from our will and desire, causing us to desire to serve God. Therefore, also the preservation of saints from the viewpoint of who these saints are is very personal. It isn't just that God will preserve His own somewhere else. But He says to everyone for whom He died today, I will preserve you. I prayed for you, thee, that thy faith fail not. In the third place, how? And the answer in general is by His grace, by His Spirit, by His power. But there's one thing that's prominent in the text on the basis of the intercession of Jesus Christ. Now, that intercession of Jesus Christ, of course, now follows His death and His finished work. He's not only died, He's not only made complete atonement for sin, but He sits at the right hand of God. He was raised the third day. He ascended into heaven. What does that tell you? That tells you that the death of Jesus Christ for you is not just an experiment and a trial and a seeing if he could overpower Satan, but it was victorious. It was efficacious. Your sins are forgiven. And Jesus Christ arose as your head and works in you new life. On the basis of his finished work, he entered Seeds, And I dare say that the intercession of Christ was an aspect of the how that you would not have so quickly mentioned if I had said to you, how does Jesus preserve his saints? You'd have said, well, he uses the preaching of the word, uses Christian discipline, but even uses the instruction of parents in the home. He uses chastisements of parents, too. He uses... Uh, reminders of fellow saints toward each other. He uses friends sometimes who are godly friends and go to their other friend who's not living godly and say to that friend who's not living godly, you are not living godly. You must live godly. You would have thought of all those sorts of means by which God preserves the saints. And more could be said. But what's set forth here that we might have quickly overlooked is the very foundational one of them. For although it's a blessed thing to have the preaching of the gospel and Christian discipline, although it's a blessed thing to have friends who are true friends because they will go admonish and rebuke a friend who's walking in sin, yet if you have none of those, but you have a praying, interceding mediator, You have Jehovah God preserving His saints. That, thirdly, was how. Fourthly, why? 
And especially the question, why is not, why does God preserve his saints? The answer to that is so that his counsel is realized, so that the death of Christ on the cross to all eternity in heaven it becomes evident as being victorious and, and beneficial. But why does God preserve his saints in the way of telling Satan, go try? Why doesn't he say to Satan when Satan comes demanding his saints, no! Stay 500 miles away. Here's a line. You cross that line, you're going to hell right now. And God doesn't do that. He says, try it. Go ahead. Why? And the answer, first of all, is that Satan must show himself to be the greatest fool by thinking he actually can destroy what God has created. And God says to him, go ahead and try it to show him a lesson. But in the second place, the answer is because God's grace is even more further magnified. In the bringing to genuine sorrow of a sinner who at one time said, that's it, I'm done being a Christian. God's grace is even more magnified in bringing that one to repentance than if, as it were, your life and mine were one very pleasant time on earth, Satan stayed far away, there were never any ripples or trials, and life all went well. Oh no. And therefore, thirdly, why? Because if our life on earth were too easy, and Satan so far away, we'd say, I don't need heaven. But when our life on earth is a trial as great as this, we still long for heaven and know our need for heaven. And then fifthly, as regards the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, Canons Head 5, Article 8, and others, of this doctrine and work of grace, God's grace for you and in you, you may be sure. And here again the Armenian says, no, you may and the Roman Catholic Pope himself says, no, you mayn't. You mayn't be sure that the saints persevere. Soon as we go around telling people that they've been chosen from eternity, Christ died and rose for them, they're going to go to heaven. Soon as we do that, they're going to say, I may live however I want now. We have destroyed all incentive to godliness. Stop. This is the preservation of the saints. Not just people. Not just people who live in ungodliness. It's the preservation of saints. And against what the Arminians say and what Rome says, listen to what Jesus Christ said and let His Word be determinative for you. I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. There Jesus assures Peter, I prayed, and God hears 
and he will hear, and you are safe. Oh, beloved, what a beautiful promise our Lord gives us. Do you hear him? With your ears and heart of faith, telling you that your faith will not fail because the Lord heard his prayer and on the basis of his own merits and death on the cross said, I've appointed you, Jesus Christ, to be the mediator, the savior, the preserver of my people. Do as you prayed to me that his faith fail not, so do. And by his spirit and word, he does. And then he gives to Peter, a resp- uh, uh, requires of Peter a response of gratitude. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Peter's conversion wouldn't happen until the resurrection morning when Jesus appeared to Peter, very specifically. First telling his, the women who went to the grave to anoint his body, go, tell the disciples and Peter that he rose from the dead. And then the Lord appearing to John and Peter. And then Peter is converted. Peter sees the risen Lord. Later on, Jesus will appear again to Peter. And he'll put Peter to a test. Peter, you once said you'd go with me into prison and to death. You once said you loved me more than all these. Do you love me more than all these? Peter said, I like you. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, I'm your friend. I'm not using the King James translation now, but conveying the force of the Greek in this passage in John 21. Peter said to them, Jesus said to him the third time, Peter, are you even my friend? Are you really mean it when you say you're my friend? But after every one of those tests of Peter's faith, Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Peter is restored and he's put again in the office of apostle. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. If Satan got you, he'd take the whole band. And he thought he had you. And he thought he had the whole band for 24, 36, about 48 hours. But now you see sin still has effects, Peter. Although I've died and risen again, and although you're converted, you've got to go now to every one of your brothers, and you need to build them up. Your sin weakened them. Strengthen thy brethren. And that's a word, a response required of us, also in the church of Jesus Christ. First of all, to the professor or the pastor, the elders, or the deacons, the heads of homes. Have you sinned grievously? It had an effect on your home and family. So when you are sorry, go now to your family members and begin addressing this with them and build them up. But I want to make one other application a moment from that. 
And that's not to the office bearers or heads of homes, but it's to anyone in the church of Jesus Christ who one time or another has fallen deeply into sin, maybe had an announcement made over the pulpit, for a time was very ashamed, and maybe still feels that there is in the congregation one, maybe more than one, who looks down on him or her, because at one time, remember what he did, The Word of God comes to that one too. But you're converted. Do your best to forget about how other people are looking at you. You are converted. And your calling is to strengthen your brethren. Now you know the danger, the power of temptation. Now you see a young person here or a father there. And things just aren't going well in their life. You don't quite want to pry, but you know you've been there. You know what can be happening. Go, strengthen, and this is gratitude because you were turned, restored from such a sin yourself. This is the command of Christ to Peter. There's no option here. But Peter carrying out the command is more than just Peter saying, well, I guess that didn't work. I tried to get out of this Christianity business and the Lord wouldn't let me. No, the response of Peter is Peter saying, how amazing is the grace of God. I'm going to testify of that grace now and to as many people as I can. Is there a time in your life you can identify at which you were tempted like this? If not, don't say, well, then you squeaked by and all will be well. Such a time may come yet. Such a time comes in your life that you're tempted. Your very faith is shaken to its core. If you hear this word, your Lord is praying. Will you say he's praying? I need him to act. Or will you say, oh, he's praying. It's going to be well with me in the end. It might be hard now, but it's going to be well in the end. And if there was a time in your life in the past, And if you say, yes, now today at the time I didn't recognize it, but now today I know he was praying for me. And someone says to you, how do you know? Then you give this as your answer. It's very simple. My faith has not failed. Surely if Christ were not praying for me, it would have failed. But it hasn't. My Savior prays. Amen. Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee that Thou dost hear Jesus Christ and for His sake will also hear us as we pray. We leave, having been built up in faith and pointed to a faithful Savior, knowing that it could be in this week that we suffer such a violent temptation 
that we live or speak as if we are not thy children. We pray, lead us not into temptation. Give us when tempted to resist the temptation and to confess thee. But if we fall, hear our Savior's prayers and convert us and put us in a position again to carry out the calling of the communion of saints in the church to strengthen our brethren. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.